Oh, I forgot to ask about Hot Pockets. Yeah, you, oh. you had a Hot Pocket lately? <laughs> you know, I can't lie. I never had one, and don't tell uh, Elmer. Elmer Fudd. <laughs> All right, um, I won't tell him. I, but, um, but a couple of weeks ago, I think I was in a very bad state about the way the stock was acting. Like a typical day with Tesla where something you think should cause the stock to go down 10% and it rallies up 2%. So mm-hmm. I went down to Dwayne Reed around the corner um, in honor of Elmer, and I did eat some Hot Pockets. And they were delicious, and it's it's some high technology, the the tinfoil thing, and everything else. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in the microwave, yeah, yeah, and, and, pretty and, you don't, and you don't start a runaway fire. It's awesome. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> the Tesla Q podcast is for informational purposes only, and is not intended for, and should not be used as financial, investment, or trading advice. Research associated with fiscal decisions should be conducted elsewhere. The host of the show possesses no license or credentials to warrant accepting advice based on what is heard on the Tesla Q podcast. Additionally, even though the host and guests may hold positions in companies discussed on the show, they don't have insights into the next time step of the simulation. Therefore, do not make any financial decisions based on the contents of this podcast. Hello and welcome to episode number 20 of the Tesla Q podcast. We did just release an interview episode yesterday, but got another one here tonight. So look forward to that. Remember, if you want to make a contribution to the podcast, go to the Cash app and search for Tesla Q podcast or go to cash.me slash Tesla Q podcast. And apologies, that does only take debit cards and apparently not all debit cards. Also, if you want some merchandise, go to the shorty store at evacuationboy.com. And with that, we'll get to the interview. Hello, this is episode number 20 of the Tesla Q podcast. I'm joined today by Ed McCabe. Ed, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No problem. I, I heard you in a, a little bit of a short clip on a podcast a few days ago, I think. So I wanted to hear from you a little bit more. So uh, to sure. start with, how about you just give a little bit of your experience so people know where you're coming from? Sure. Uh, I've worked on Wall Street since 1996. Uh, started on the sell side as an analyst covering technology stocks. In fact, uh, I covered the first dot-com bubble, so I've seen extreme valuations and, and all kinds of bloodshed uh, thereafter. And uh, after I left the sell side, I've worked at a variety of hedge funds, uh, including one that I had for myself for a period of time. Um, so I've been in and around stocks and the markets. Oh, boy, now it's 23 years. Um, so that's, that's kind of the angle I come from. I know there's a lot of people from the Tesla, Tesla Q audience or uh, group um, that brings so much uh, valuable expertise from so many disciplines that I don't I don't know. Um, so it's really been a fascinating crowdsourcing kind of experience. So again, I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I think that's one of the most unique aspects of Tesla Q, and it's part of why I ended up starting this podcast. Actually, yeah. So I've listened your... to Keith, and I've listened to Keith now in Phoenix, and, uh, mm-hmm. and Tesla charts. So you've had some really great guests, and Montana skeptic. Don't forget him. And Montana. I don't, yeah, know, if you li- the, the I don't know if you listened to that one or not. Yeah. I did. I, um, yeah. So in, in your career, have you mostly been on the long side or the short side or somewhere in between mixture of the two? You know, I've uh, done both. Um, on the sell side, you're kind of writing research. Um, and in the era I did it, um, it was very long oriented. Um, but then on the hedge fund side, um, I've done a lot of shorting. It's actually been something I've gravitated toward. Um, also in my personal life, just as way of background, I, I helped, um, uncover a small cap fraud where, you know, um, I sent one guy to prison for seven to 21 years, or at least I had a hand in it, you know, help the prosecutors get educated. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, and I, and I gained that experience by having lost money myself and then, um, you know, really wanting to go after the guys, um, who, who had committed the crime and in doing so, um, got a real inside look to how these things can work. Now, this was a much smaller cap company that this happened with. It was a $210 million fraud. Um, but you really get the mechanics of how people act when they're in desperate straits. Um, so anyway, um, so yes, I've, I've always had an inclination toward the short side um, just because I find it more challenging. Um, sometimes I regret that I gravitate toward it, but it's a natural <laughs> inclination for me for some some weird reason. Might yeah, be the law enforcement like... in my family. <laughs> ah, yeah. People, it's, it's, it's in the uh, DNA. <laughs> seems like seems like a lot of people like to paint short sellers as as being evil or or something to that effect which i i take some issue with that cuz really what we're the role that we're playing in a in a lot of ways is a consumer protection role a little bit of an investor protection role like with the interview that we that just went out yesterday with Keith 
uh, safety roll. Uh, we had the unfortunate uh, crash from yesterday down in Florida. So yeah, we, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I mean, I think when you look at the regulatory environment across many disciplines, whether it's the NHTSA, you know, where kind of Keith brings a perspective, or it's the SEC, and we'll talk about this because things kind of change with them tonight. But up until this point, they've been asleep at the switch. So I really think of short sellers as as the cops in the market. Um, and they take a tremendous amount of risk being short. And the idea, you know, and I, I know what happens from time to time, but the idea that there's this cabal of, of networked people working against the stock, if you are a good company generating cash flow, run well, you should relish short sellers in your stock because all they are is latent buyers. They're eventually going to have to cover if you are running this company well, and that would be nothing but fuel for your stock. So in my history, anytime I've seen a CEO who was obsessed with short sellers, um, it's always been a company that had something to hide or was in trouble, and maybe that'll be the case here with Tesla. Yeah, I've heard similar things uh, from some of the interviews that Mark Cahotis has done on the Quote the Raven podcast, so that sounds very familiar to me. Uh, before we go any right. further, would you like to add any additional disclosure but beyond the standard one that I have at the beginning of the episode? Yeah, um, I'd say two things. One is, yeah, this is not investment advice from me. Um, I don't hold any licenses at the moment. And to the extent we talk about anything legal related to the SEC or otherwise, I am definitely not a lawyer. Um, I've been around the law, on, on uh, like I told you, when I, when I dealt with the previous fraud. And um, so I kind of know the world, but I'm not a lawyer. And I wouldn't, you know, misrepresent that in any way. And neither am I. So and okay. I'm not licensed either. So don't don't take any of what I say as investment or trading advice. So, OK. So you, you mentioned that things just changed with the SEC this evening. So. Do you want to go ahead and describe what we're yeah, trying to um, figure out here? Yeah, I think it was around, I don't know, Eastern time, around 6.15. I saw the stock drop like 3%, 4%. Um, so I you know, immediately went on the Internet to see what had happened. And what, what we saw was that the SEC filed a, um, what is it, a, a show cause order. Basically, the SEC has gone to the judge, Judge Nathan, um, who was the judge. When they, let me back up because I don't know the audience uh, entirely. In August, Elon Musk committed what I would consider the most egregious securities fraud um, in market history when he said he had a going private bid for the company at $420, $420. Um, and what we found out in retrospect is that he, in fact, did not. And then the SEC sued him, and he settled with the SEC. And he had you know terms of that settlement, and the terms were – you know, pay $20 million personally as a fine. The company would pay $20 million. Um, he couldn't deny the allegations and that he would have his communications, including his tweets, overseen by a committee within, within the company. And so he did that settlement. But it seems to me shortly after doing that settlement, he really just thumbed his nose at the SEC. And if you go back to when the original settlement, when he was originally sued, he turned to his board and said, Either you fight this with me or I'm going to quit. I'm going to take my ball and go home. And so he came out with kind of a defiant statement, and he's often defiant in the beginning, and said he was going to fight this, and he was, you know, integrity was the most important thing to him. His stock got killed the next day, and I think that day was a Friday, and by Saturday mm -hmm. they, they had settled. Okay? Yeah, and I, so, think, I think the original that, fine was $20 million, and then with the settlement, after they'd initially rejected the initial settlement, it got raised to $40 million total. So yes, it was twenty million from Musk personally and mm -hmm. twenty million from the company, so forty million total. But what I noticed right after he settled, you know, and I gave you that fight or you know kind of fight or I'm out of here, you know, mentality he had. But shortly thereafter, he was on Twitter mocking um, the SEC, referring to them as the short seller enrichment commission. Then he went on sixty minutes, which doesn't have a bigger audience in the, in America, and he basically told the world he doesn't respect the SEC. And then he issued many tweets that I thought were flagrant violations of, of the settlement agreement with February 19th tweet, which we'll touch on being the most egregious. And so, so anyway, basically what happened was on February 19th, he went out and said that, that Tesla would produce, you know, around 500,000 cars in 2019. Now only January 30th, the company gave guidance that they produced 360 to 400,000 cars in 2019. So a completely different number. And then four hours later, he comes out and kind of retracts that statement and says, you know, we'll be on a run rate 
of 500,000 by the end of the year. And so what that prompted the SEC to do, what we learned tonight, is that they've gone to the judge and, and filed this show cause order is to hold him in contempt because he has violated the agreement. And, and when you look at the, the, uh, the show cause order, it's not just the content of the tweet, which is material inaccurate. But really what we learned from that show cause order is he had no pre-approval for that tweet, which was required. And in fact, none of his tweets since they put this settlement agreement in place have been pre-approved. And then the final thing I read in there that I, I thought was very strong language from the SEC is that they basically said, you know, Musk has not made a diligent or good faith effort to comply. So it really sounds like the SEC is loaded for bear because they've been embarrassed now. They gave him a slap on the wrist and he turned around and basically mocked them thereafter. And I think even as, you know, I'm a critic of the SEC and there's a lot of people who critique the SEC, but there comes a point, I don't care who you are, if you're a professional uh, and you've been mocked and embarrassed to a certain extent, you, you need to, you know, you, you need to come, you, you, you need to do your job. And I think we're at the point where the SEC, he's forced them into a corner. They have to do their job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I actually came across that clip from 60 Minutes just earlier tonight and I retweeted it. It was on December 7th, I believe. And Elon clearly stated in that interview that he wasn't going to have people monitoring his tweets. And yeah, it, it was, and then he said, let me be clear. I do not respect the SEC. I do not respect them. So that was a very, very flagrant violation of the settlement from, from my view. Yeah, from my view as well. And the, the other thing, and, I, and this is just speculation on my part, but there's no doubt in my mind that Tesla needs to raise capital. And there was no doubt in my mind December 9th, and probably not in his, that he needed to raise capital. And when he said that, and that was unprompted, I mean, if you look at that dialogue between Leslie Stahl of 60 Minutes and Elon, she didn't prompt him in any way to, like, lash out at the SEC. And it makes me wonder if he knew, in terms of what was going on in the investigation with the SEC and the DOJ, that he maybe couldn't raise capital. And, and this was him, you know, lashing out at that, at that you know, at that fact. I don't know that. It's just speculation. But it just struck me as odd um, mm-hmm. that he would lash out against the one agency that stands between him and the capital markets when he needs capital. Yeah, and some additional speculation that I've seen just tonight on Twitter is that possibly this is an attempt by Elon Musk to somehow be forced out of Tesla and have somebody else to blame if it does, in fact, go bankrupt so that he could say, oh, it wasn't my fault. It was the SEC's fault because they punished me for this just for saying some words. And I don't know. That's just speculation, though, that's going on right now. With a, you know, it's a pattern with Elon, to my, not, to, to my observation, that there's always somebody to blame. There's a saboteur. There's big oil. There are short sellers. There are traditional auto manufacturers. And if he knows this is going down, he's going to get forced out, or he wants to get forced out. You know, I've said to people oftentimes, this is like suicide by cop. I mean, he's been taunting the cop on the beat in our business, which is the SEC, I don't know what his motivation is. He's very hard to figure out. He doesn't, you know, his psychology I couldn't put my finger on. But, man, I've never seen somebody taunt the authority that governs him the way he does. So I don't know. And, I, and I'd also say this because I'm seeing a little speculation on Twitter already, you know, where some of the bulls are saying, well, maybe he remains CEO. He pays a larger fine. He has to step down as director. And I'd say two things. One is – the way the SEC has been embarrassed and the way that um, show cause order is written, I think they're going to take a hard line with him. But even secondary to that, if you are a director right now, and obviously this has been a travesty in terms of corporate governance, this company, but if you are a director right now, and we've just revealed that you never even implemented the oversight of his tweets the way you were supposed to or all his communication, you really have to ask yourself, is he fit to be CEO anymore? Or is he introducing me personally to liability um, that I can't? really take on as a risk? Uh, am I in self-preservation mode? Do I have to lawyer up and protect my interests as a director? Because what he's done now is so flagrant, it, it's questionable whether he wants to be CEO and whether he's fit to be CEO. Mm-hmm. So relating back to why Elon might not want to be CEO anymore, the way his compensation structure is set up, it's fully equity-based, so it's options. He doesn't... I think he... I think his salary agreement, which I just read within the last couple of weeks a little bit of, he, he gets California minimum wage because that's 
that's the law in California, but he he decided not to take it or deferred it or whatever. But so his his only compensation is Tesla equity, basically, other than his holdings in right. SpaceX and the Boring Company. So mm-hmm. his liquidity position, his personal liquidity position is not not rosy right now. And that's clearly evidenced by this recent revelation that he mortgaged five different properties on December 18th for about $61 million, which we were talking about it on Tesla Q Twitter at least five days, maybe a week before there were news articles about it. But late last week, I believe it was news articles started coming out about it. So just a, that's just one small example of the news cycle and how we're a little bit ahead of the game on Tesla Q Twitter than if you're only paying attention to mainstream media. So yeah, I don't even you know if you go back to 2017 was the last disclosure of his margin loans. You know I think he had somewhere in the neighborhood of 700 million dollars of money borrowed against Tesla stock, and since that time we've seen rounds of financing, uh, an equity round for um, SpaceX in April, a senior secured debt round in November for SpaceX, um, an equity round in December for SpaceX. I think it's and he I'm sure he participated in all those. Um, I'm not sure, but I think he probably has. Uh, the boring company, I think, raised to 100 and change, 100 million and change. I'm sure he participated. I think that's documented that he put over 100 million in that. So he could be approaching, you know, a billion dollars of margin loans. And now he's gone and mortgaged the houses. Um, he is arguably in a pretty precarious liquidity situation. We know he's got paper mm-hmm. wealth as long as these stocks and these equity values hold up. But you know, he he he's probably got a uh, monthly budget that rivals Floyd Mayweather Jr. This is what I always say. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, and uh, speaking to his 2018 capital outlay, there's a, a Twitter user, It's the handle's EV Defender, who has laid out clearly a minimum of like $286 million in 2018 that Elon paid. I think it was a, about $100 million in a SpaceX raise that was actually disclosed. Another hundred million for a boring company raise that was disclosed, mm-hmm. and then there's the possibility that he was involved in that December 18th through 21st or whatever SpaceX raise that got 273 of 500 million. So a minimum and of 286 bought, million, yeah. And, and it, it included his, uh, yeah, it included that the 20 million, well, the 19 19 million 999 thousand that he was basically just paying back Tesla for the $20 million SEC fine. And then also the open market transaction from earlier in the year, I think. So, yeah, that's, so that's probably relatively close to what I was talking about. Something approaching a billion dollars. I mean, 800 million, a billion, it doesn't matter. It's a ton of money. And when you're collapse, when you're a leveraged person, and you, you know, because you borrowed against the stock and the stock you borrowed against is the equity of a leveraged company. It's the potential for a tough situation. Mm-hmm. So I, I think on Twitter I've seen you mention that this is maybe the biggest fraud that you've ever seen in your career. Is that well? Am I, mean, I remembering the, the right? Only, or, or do you want to word that differently? Yeah, no, I don't. I, yeah, I, I I don't think I've used the word fraud. I mean, the it, there's a lot that's curious. Let's put it that way. I mean, in terms of funding okay. secured, he was sued for fraud. He did settle that fraud case. Um, that I think is cut and dry fraud. There are a lot of things that are curious. As it regards taxes, accounting, you know, dealing with refunds of deposits, dealing with the discrepancy between registrations and deliveries, I would call those things curious at this moment. I can't say mm-hmm. uh, definitively that they're fraudulent, um, but they are curious is the best I can say. Yes, very, very curious in some cases. But, you know, just, just a lot of things that are curious. And, and they all come back to me, to the, the critical thing here, because going back to my early days in this business when I was covering the dot-com craze, which eventually crashed. I watched a lot of very seasoned investors, much older than I was at the time, get taken out on stretchers trying to short things based on valuation. You have to have a catalyst. And to me, it's always been about, can this company consistently generate cash flow? And we know about the immaculate quarter of, you know, um, the third quarter, which there were a lot of curious things going on there as it regards just rebates potentially and, in the third and fourth quarter were obviously back-to-back profitable quarters, and I think there's just a lot of gimmicks at best in those quarters, whether they were rebates, whether they were you know, 
CapEx that annualized at $1.3 billion in the fourth quarter, well below what maintenance CapEx is, whether it was flat R&D for a tech growth company, whether it was SG&A being down year over year, and SG&A down and CapEx weak when you don't have a infrastructure for services that is up, for snuff, up to snuff, where you don't have supercharger network up to snuff, where you're trying to introduce new models, where you're trying to build a plant in China in record time for a record low amount of money. There's just a lot of things that don't add up. And all of it's happening as we approach a very key date, which you know is March 1st with this, with this convert due. And obviously this is a convertible note that needs to be paid in cash. Uh, yes. And, and so we're, we are we're recording, we're recording this on February 25th. So we've, so it's Monday, February 25th while we're recording the convertible is due Friday, March 1st. So, right. The convertible is due Friday, March 1st. The CEO on the same day, the 25th of February has, you know, is being pursued by the SEC again. Um, we know that January model three deliveries were horrible down 74%. December to January at 6,500. We know that there are, is capital tied up as ships, you know, head to steam to China and to Europe, where demand in both places seemed tepid. So to me, like the, the, at this critical juncture, March 1st, we've got the CEO in jeopardy again, and we've got capital tied up. Um, I don't know how they're going to, what the sequence will be, you know, but if they pay this convert, which if, Elon has his brothers. I'm sure they will, but directors may be thinking differently. If they pay this convert, they still need to raise capital, you know, um, thereafter. Mm-hmm. I mean, they will diminish their capital to a point where you can't run an automobile company on the capital, uh, on the cash lot left. So it, it really is a very interesting time, intra-quarter, um, all that's going on in terms of, you know, like I said, capital tied up on boats, CEO in trouble again, um, and the maturity coming due, you know, in, in a couple of days. And on that that cash topic, obviously they reported that they had three point seven billion dollars of cash on the books mm-hmm. as of December thirty first. But I know a lot of people have done analyses that, uh, based on the interest income, that make it seem make it appear that the average cash balance intraquarter was probably quite a bit lower than the three point seven billion. Yeah, Are you- the intra-quarter average cash balance is probably about $1.3, $1.4 billion of ungenerous. So whatever window dressing they do at the end of the quarter, whether they draw down on the on the uh, asset-based loan at the end of the quarter to window dress cash, whether they're doing some type of reverse factoring um, to window dress cash. If I'm a creditor, I can do that simple analysis on the interest income, um, and I can figure out that this company is in a much different cash situation than it is on you know, December 31st, 2018 at 11.59 with 59 seconds that it could change on January 1st. Um, so, yeah, I, I, have this, I have the same read, um, that the intraquarter yeah, so cash gets dangerously low. If, if it is, if it had been around $1.4 and got drawn back down to near that level, and then they pay this $920 million, I, I, how can they, and they have all these cars on ships, I, I, they seem to be in a very dire situation. I, well, it's almost you know, un, unfathomable Elon, to me. But yeah, well, Elon and Deepak <clears throat> have said in the past that you know the minimum cash balance they should have to run this company is a billion dollars. There's no math I can do where they pay this maturity and they're sitting with a billion dollars or, or much over a billion dollars um, once they do. Um, and I think the other thing is you know if you're a director, it, this is not about like. You, you can't run a car company week to week like this. And, you know, okay, we paid our, uh, we paid our convert, but now we don't have the, comp- you know, the money to run the company. That's reckless to do in and of itself. Uh, if that is the case and there are reasonable cash flow forecasts that are being produced honestly within the company and being shared honestly with the directors, the directors have to ask themselves a real question about whether paying this maturity is what's in the best interest of the company, its employees, its creditors, you know, this is not just run for share. Um, they have other stakeholders here, and they need to consider them. Mm-hmm. Of course, they also have the stakeholders of their customers who deserve to have a supercharging infrastructure that they were promised and parts available when they have uh, issues where they maybe had a, a fender bender or something and need a new part. But we're not seeing that with, with some of those other things, too. So, And, of yeah, course, I, the I, ultimate... I think- 
safety issue, but we talked. I talked about that in episode 19, so go back and listen to that yeah, one if yeah. you're interested. <laughs> no, I, I did listen. It was excellent. Yeah, I think what you said is basically what we've done is we've exhausted the demand from early adopters, whether those are Silicon Valley people or you know kind of gadget guys and tech guys and, and people who have money to throw away on a third car because you know, they're in a position to do so, and that's great. Um, but if you're going to get to the mass market, which has always been the thesis here, um, you need to produce a car that is suitable for a practical Midwestern person who drives in temperatures below freezing, who uses that car to get to work to make their living. And that is different than selling you know, in Silicon Valley to a guy who works at Oracle and has four cars in the driveway. And that, that's where the problem is going to be with all the things you mentioned, as far as service, service, service levels, service parts availability, and the uh, supercharger network. It just hasn't kept pace. And people won't tolerate it in the mass market. Mm-hmm. Definitely not. And the fact that they, w- when he announced the Model Three, the thirty-five thousand dollar price was was plastered on the on the screen so prominently, and that car is still not available. I think the cheapest one right now is around forty-two thousand, with right. only half of the tax credit, of course. That's that's right. And I think they just recently pulled the thirty-five thousand dollar. They forever they had the thirty-five thousand dollar version of the Model 3, but it always said available four to six months. And I think it was yeah, over this the weekend. short-range version. Yeah, I think it was within yeah, the, the one everyone was five or six days that they may have taken right. that off the, the website. But I don't you, remember the exact you know, that, date. So. But you've you got to ask yourself, you know, why was it pulled? You know, did, did a regulator, you know, did, did the Federal Trade Commission come in and say, hey, you can't market a car and say it's due in four to six months for the last year. If you don't have a reasonable basis for it to be, you know, mm-hmm. ready in that time frame, is this is this legal, or did you know for the brief period that Dane Batsuinkas was there as general counsel, you know, did he say, hey, you can't run it like this? I don't know the answer to that, but it, it is curious to me. Again, I use that word a lot with these guys um, mm-hmm. that that got pulled. I don't know what the motivation was, but it's interesting. And I don't remember the exact timing either of of when that got pulled versus when Dane pulled himself or was pulled or or however that went down exactly. Yeah. It is quite clear that the uh, the timing of Butswinkus leaving was was likely tied to this tweet from last Tuesday night with the five hundred thousand. Yeah. Then the I'm not quite so sure about that. To be honest, but I'm not quite you, you so think sure it might about not that be? because. Yeah, well, I mean, that tweet was sent um, December. I'm sorry, February nineteenth. I think he came out. The AK came out re- related to Dame Butswinkus the next day. And they had a replacement named. Now, I guess you could argue, like, he saw it. He said, this is ridiculous. Um, and they quickly tapped some young guy on the shoulder, and he took the job. But that would have happened in a very, very tight time frame. Um, for me, I don't know. The, the Twinkus, I know people who know him, uh, who have used him. They said he's a tremendous lawyer. Uh, and then you can read on the Internet, and, you know, it's all the same. But this is someone who used him. Um, and, you know, a guy like the Twinkus, he relishes the fight. You know what I mean? This is his job. But the only time you find, I find that attorneys like this leave a client or are fired by a client, whatever way it happened, is one of really two things in my experience. Either they don't think that the client is giving them the full set of facts, right? And lawyers hate that to go and, you know, potentially go to trial mm-hmm. and get embarrassed because the client has not told them everything they need to know. Or the, the lawyer has given counsel to that um, client and the client has told him has rejected that counsel. Neither of those things would shock me with Musk, but I don't know. I don't know the terms of his resignation at all. Um, just speculating again. Yeah, and, and back to Butswinkus. I believe Mont- Montana Skeptic spoke highly of him as well. I believe, and uh, the the firm that he's the chairman of, Williams and Connolly, I, I believe, is who Brett Kavanaugh worked for. So he's our newest Supreme Court justice. And I think maybe one other Supreme Court justice used to work at that firm. So it's a very legitimate firm. They get referred to on the television show, show Suits, which I occasionally hear in the background. Uh, so they're a very legitimate firm, and he's the chairman. Oh, they're beyond legitimate. So they're, they're about as white shoe and as respected as they get. And mm-hmm. uh, I know from people, like I said, who know him, said, you know, the twink is within. He's often litigating against the FEC and against the DOJ. But he is um, tremendously respected within those two uh, two institutions. Um, so, in fact, when I saw him get hired, I said, "Wow, this is a, probably a pretty a very smart hire." 
um, I was always skeptical about what due diligence he did going into the job. Um, and I thought it was a weird transition because, you know, secure, um, general counsel usually aren't from the litigation side. That said, given all the litigation that's forthcoming for Tesla, maybe having someone like him quarterback at all made some sense. But obviously, similar to Dave Morton, lasting 27 days as chief accounting officer, um, he left in a very brief period of time. I don't know what the, I don't know if something he saw or his interactions with Musk or I have no idea, but to watch very, very pedigreed people change their job and then leave so quickly. I mean, he's been at like Williamson Colony for 30 years and he just lasted mm-hmm. 60 days at best. I mean, there's something there's, it's got to tell you something, something is, mm-hmm. it's got to be absolute turmoil within that company right now, particularly tonight with this, um, with this show cause order and, you know, in the SEC trying to get him uh, in contempt of court. I, mean, I can't imagine what's going on internally with a 34-year-old CFO and a 40-year-old general counsel and CEO who's, you know, whose uh, future is uncertain. Mm-hmm. And, and a maturity a, on March 1st. <laughs> it's going to be a very, very interesting rest of the week, <laughs> certainly. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, we kind of got going on the, the latest stuff Let's back up a little mm-hmm. bit. How how long have you been following Tesla in general, and what brought you into following Tesla? Well, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, and this is like 10 years ago, I ran a, a small um, energy hedge fund, and we did a lot of alternative energy stuff, often shorting it. So I first saw this company at a conference when it was a private company, um, and I just sat in on the meeting because it was intriguing to me, this electric vehicle concept. Um and then I've always followed it from a distance, but I didn't really get engaged from a research perspective or re-engaged, let's say, until I'd say the beginning of 18 is when I really started taking note of the valuation, um, how small I thought the market was ultimately for the cars, the emerging competition. And then, you know, the overlay to me has always been this, and I've said this to people before. If you do auto manufacturing absolutely perfectly, over the course of an economic cycle, you'll be lucky to earn your cost of capital. You'll be lucky to be afforded a 6 to 10 PE multiple. And you'll be lucky to avoid bankruptcy. So knowing that's the background of the industry they're in, and those are the really good guys. That's what they get. <laughs> that, 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 that's what the market affords people who are uh, companies that are really good at auto manufacturing. Um, like Toyota, Honda, Ford. Here. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, GM and Ford traded six times earnings or five, five and a half times earnings. And they, they're, mm-hmm. they're pretty damn good at what they do. Um, and they that's when it pay dividends. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, but that's, that's when it kind of got on my radar screen uh, where it just didn't make sense. Um, and, then, and then as I got more engaged and I started seeing, you know, the outlandish claims, the missing of targets, um, and now what's come clear is a quality issue. Um, and then I'd say the other thing is that the narrative that was always sold to the street was that we have unlimited demand. And I always thought that was outlandish. There's nothing that has unlimited demand, um, mm-hmm. except that people are giving away money. Um, and our only constraint is supply and our ability to produce. And um, so I thought, I hate hearing outlandish statements like that. I got a lot of people telling me, never bet against Elon. That's like a dog whistle for me. Like, That's you know, a, I hear... There's a Twitter account with that name, I believe. That's Don't right. bet against Elon. When, when it, Whenever you're deifying a, a anybody, you know, um, I said I just got to keep an eye on this one. Now it has been a, mm-hmm. it has not been an easy short. There's no two ways about it. Um, but it had all the it had all the markers for me um, to be involved, and so I am short the stock to be a long dated puts, and I have been for quite some time. Um, and um, you know, as we do work uh, on our own and, and as a group, um, I get more and more confident that the thesis is correct. Um, but you know, it, it will not, this, this short will not work because one day somebody decides to value it like Toyota. This stock will work because of creditors and because of a lack of cash flow and maybe the inability to raise capital. Um, but if you're sitting around hoping that the people who own this stock, who basically, um, are cultists are going to just wake up one day and decide it's overvalued, uh, it's a bad thesis and it's not why I'm short. And I'm sure it's not why anybody's short, um, who's, who's relatively intelligent. Back to the infinite demand thing that that they tried to portray, I think I've I've been following it at least at a distance for probably over a year now. 
But back, I, mm-hmm. I remember distinctly uh, when the the five thousand car per week production target was allegedly finally met on June thirtieth. Right. And I watched the share price following that event just on July second, third, mm-hmm. and fifth. The share price just collapsed in my head. You know, it it solidified that it's not about the production, and and for a long, long time, I've I've had the view that the market size is limited because personally, I'm not I'm not super wealthy yet, so I I would be hard pressed to justify paying over forty thousand dollars for a a sedan. So Mm -hmm. knowing myself and people that I see in my everyday life, knowing that we're not part of the market that can afford a Tesla, even a Model 3, I have a lot different perspective than most people in Silicon Valley or or even like the wealthy parts of New York or lots of other parts of the country. So I feel like I've had an advantage in viewing Tesla because of my perspective in that regard. But, that, but yeah, I definitely you agree know, that, that I think that's, yeah, it, the unlimited I, demand you thing get, you, doesn't make sense. No, and, and, and you know, y- y- when you get to the market for, uh, first of all, sedans are out of favor in general, right? Everyone's buying SUVs, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, so you look at the traditional auto manufacturers, they're de-emphasizing sedans. I think Ford's getting rid of them altogether, other than, like, the Mustang and some, you know, you know really kind of iconic cars. Um, mm-hmm. So, and then you think about, okay, sedans are not even in favor, and then when you get to sedans over $40,000, it's a very small market, and then haircut that market again by, you know, who, how many people want electric cars? I mean, it, it was just silly, but you often find that, like, on Wall Street, you know, you got people from a cer- certain socioeconomic background in general. Um, same thing on Silicon Valley side of the country. Um, they take this stuff because they see it in their neighbor's driveway. They think this is the rest of the world. Well, yeah, if you go to San Mateo, California, you know, you'll see a Model 3 or a Model S every other car. Um, but that's not true everywhere else. And you're right. It's good that you have that perspective because people just took that narrative and never even thought through it. They just sat there and said, oh, when can Elon get to 5,000 cars a week? Which, by the way, he never has consistently. And by the way, and just to circle all the way back to the beginning, if you think about about what he's in trouble with, again, for the SEC, um, with the SEC, is again his prognostications or his predictions about production. Um, Mm -hmm. He's already, they're already under investigation about the predictions he made back in the fall or summer of 17 about getting the 5,000 a week by the end of 17 and 10,000 a week by the end of 18. So he's already got everybody in his place or subpoena him him and suppliers or whatever on this very issue. And then he has Mm -hmm. the audacity to go on Twitter and make another prediction around this very same issue that is again materially false i mean it's incredible mm-hmm. and we'll see how quick quick things happen this week i guess with with how that goes down yeah i, I don't know how, i don't know the and process with the legal stuff speaking of this week uh something that hasn't really i don't think many people are aware of it at all uh, but plain the twitter twitter user plain site which I, I believe is run by aaron greenspan who was a yeah a contemporary of Mark Zuckerberg at Harvard, I think, back yep. around the time of the creation of Facebook, he's he took the uh, he took the initiative to pay some money to actually get some of these filings for some of the the ongoing suits with Tesla. And apparently, there are a series of depositions that are going to be taken beginning Wednesday with Kimball Musk, which is Elon's brother, of mm-hmm. course, who is often seen wearing a cowboy hat. Has a, a yeah, I don't know if you're allowed to wear that hat. During the, I don't know if you're allowed to wear a cowboy hat during the deposition. I, I don't know. I don't know. They, they might let him. Uh, I know his expertise yeah. is the food industry. I'm not sure mm-hmm. what what he brings to the Tesla or SpaceX boards particularly. But on Wednesday morning, he gets to provide a deposition. So go Kimball. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah I it, mean, I, I mean, I, I looked at that list, and it's 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 kind of like a month and a half of or two months of successive depositions with the last one being Musk. And that's obviously related to the solar city bailout when, when Tesla uh, in November of 16 
um, Solar City was was going to fail. Solar City should have gone bankrupt. But again, Musk and his his cousins had margin loans against the stock. They needed to save the stock, and they bought it out at the expense of Tesla shareholders. So that's that lawsuit. And uh, you know, when when the post mortem is written on this whole Tesla story, that will be the seminal moment. The the moment mm-hmm. they went in and and bailed that company out and took on two point six billion dollars of debt and bought a company with no synergies with the auto business. Everyone will look back and in amazement in retrospect. Um, mm-hmm. You know. They yeah they might have been able to successfully roll out the Model Three if they didn't have the the Solar City Albatross hanging on. I mean, just look yeah, at Buffalo they, they, they over nev- the last few weeks. Yeah, I mean they they never they should have stayed a high end car manufacturer, making the Model S and and making things like it and selling it to wealthy people for you know you know compete with Ferrari or compete with Porsche or whoever it may be, and and be an mm-hmm. artisanal car maker you know for wealthy middle-aged men in a, in, a, in a midlife crisis, whatever. There's a good market there. But going into the mass market, which I described earlier and how, how difficult it is, that was the fatal mistake. The other fatal mistake was being completely vertically integrated, um, not having um, dealerships and service, a service network and um, not having a place to outlay, the, you know, put these cars to um, um, when they're produced. Um, and that's why they're you know, strewn hither and yon um, across the country in dusty lots. Being vertically integrated was a um, either ignorant or arrogant decision, and it might have been a combination of both. But that's the mission to to push the advent of electric vehicles. That's that's the whole. Oh, there's going to be plenty of other people <laughs> who are going to do that for him. Um, you know, mm-hmm. he he said on uh, he said on CBS on, on 60 Minutes, which I, it really caught my ear, having been around the markets for so long. Um, and he basically said, you know, if if Tesla goes bankrupt. But in, in doing so, drags the rest of you know automobile manufacturers into electrification. That will be positive. And that is not a position you can take if you're the CEO of a public company. You take the public's money and you benefit from all these tax incentives apart from that. You can't just do a victory lap if your company fails. And I tell you, if I worked at Fidelity, if I was the guy with gray hair at Fidelity, at T. Rowe, Bailey Gifford, and I would say, hey, guys, how, how can we take our investors' money and invest with a CEO who not only has to settle a fraud case, but again, it's gone on national TV and said, if we fail, okay, we gave it a shot, and we move, the, uh, we move the earth towards sustainability. That is not who you can invest with if you are Fidelity or, or T.R.O. or Ellie Gifford or I guess if you're uh, Gerber Kawasaki, you can. I guess if you're <laughs> ARC, you can. But I, I, I just – I can't believe um, that anyone could go into an investment committee, make this pitch, and not have a guy, you know, uh, or, or a gal who runs the investment committee and say, "Hold on a second, I just read these ten things in the paper. We're still going to put money here." I, I, it shocks me. And of course, Arc reduced their holdings by forty-four point five percent in quarter four of twenty eighteen. So right, and they have and, the and, infamous and, and way, four thousand dollar price target. Right, but she goes on CNBC and and touts the stock. And nobody in CNBC does enough background work to see that, you know, check the filings and ask her, okay, I understand you still like the stock, but you did cut your position by 44%. Now, her answer, I think I've seen given elsewhere, is that our max. I, I think, think, I think that's what that it is, right? Her, yeah, her, I, I think her own internal risk management rules say that once the position gets to 10%, they need to s- sell it. Um, oh, now, okay. she, sold, she, she, she cut it in half, essentially. But my only point is, if she's going to go on there and, and tout this stock, then you know what? Melissa Lee, whoever's hosting the program at that time, got to ask her, why have you cut your position? Nobody even asked the question. She might have a legitimate answer. Ask it. Do some work. You know, the journalists, and that's not, I shouldn't say it, the journalists have started to come around, and some of the journalists, you know, Laura Kolodny mm-hmm. and, and Charlie Grant and Lizette, uh, uh, Lynette Burdette. Lopez, I'm sorry, Neil Burdett. There's been a there's been a handful of them that have done very solid work throughout, but the rest of and the they're still they're still here, working too. So yeah, yeah, they're yeah. Not, no, they're, they're no, they're doing yet. excellent work. <laughs> no, but the rest of the the rest of the journalists have been aiding and abetting this thing the whole way through. And mm-hmm. um, I know we're in an era of access journalism where if you say something about Tesla, you don't get access to Tesla anymore. Phil but LeBeau, man, I mean, Rob, uh, yes. Tom Randall. Yeah. Don't, don't get me going. Sorry, I'm, I'm yeah, don't even get me. naming names. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'll quit. But, uh, anyway, <laughs> okay. Um, 
So, um, you, know, I, 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 you know, I know we're kind of riffing and we're all over the place. The other thing I'd say is if you're a consumer products company, well, put it this way, Tesla doesn't have a particularly good manufacturing operation. Tesla does not have a good service operation. Tesla does not have a good logistics and delivery operation. Tesla has one thing that has been incredibly valuable for a very long time, and it's its brand. I mean, you talk to people who have Teslas or aspire to Teslas. Tesla is this brand that they really can't wait to get their hands on, or if they have it, they love it, regardless of its problems. But the problem now is the most valuable thing they have, this brand, is getting degraded daily. And that's fine when you want to sell the cars to these early adopters and stuff. But like we said earlier, if you're trying to get to the mass market, you can't have consumer reports pulling their recommendation. You can't have anyone can go on the Internet and find out all of these service issues and quality issues. You can't have people being burnt to death in 15 seconds and fires that fire departments can't put out. That stuff is the mass market stuff that you can't recover from. doors that the emergency personnel can't open, which the 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 NHTSA has to do something. Yeah. And ironically enough, I'm sorry, I'm going to go on a slight rant here. I don't Mm -hmm. remember where it was, but somewhere in some some forum, I believe Elon Musk was bragging about the fact that or it might have been a new might have been a written article, but is basically pointing out that Elon Musk directly had his hands on the door handle design. Might have been the Charles Duhigg piece in Wired, actually, but I might I might be misremembering. But uh, yeah. thinking ab- thinking about that in light of yesterday's wreck, just it it yeah, I I don't have words, so I'll just stop. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I you know, you're I'm not an engineer by any means, but I did read that article. I I think it's the one you're citing, but I definitely read it somewhere that this was like almost like a mini obsession for him. You know. I think he's more into like the aesthetics of things than how they actually work. Um, and I think he, he has a, he has a thought in his mind and everybody scrambles to get it done uh, in haste. And I think you're dealing with that. And, and, you know, you listen, we can go in a more significant way about, you know, how the testing wasn't done on this car, how these are effectively people beta testing cars to this day, how we can go to, you know, we are now building less than 5,000 a week with the aid of a tent that was never foreseen. Um, mm-hmm. And there are permanent issues with that tent and there are safety issues with that tent. It's a, and there's, there's more fires at this, um, at this auto plant than I think has ever been recorded in terms of mm-hmm. how frequent they are. I mean, it just sounds like an organization both operationally and leadership wise and financially and legally out of control. Mm-hmm. Indeed. There's just so many aspects of it. With your expertise, I think we've, we we want to stick to the the financials of it. Are there any particular mm-hmm. items that you think we haven't covered quite yet? Yeah, it, you know, it came up on um, Twitter today, but I've been looking at it for a while. Not looking at it, but cognizant of it for a while. You know, people are focused on this convert, um, but you know, someone mentioned all the purchase obligations the company has, largely to Panasonic, mm-hmm. um, and you know. If I've set these purchase obligate these purchase agreements with Panasonic, and they were based on the predictions for production that we know have not come come true, I look at them as the most significant creditor in this situation. You mm-hmm. know, they have equipment in that factory, um, so so it just I, I think to the average investor they probably don't get into page one hundred and twenty and look at the purchase obligations of of, of customers, but. To the educated uh, investor, long or short, um, it's a significant thing to, to, to be mindful of. And so anyway, yeah, but on, from a financial that, perspective, there's a thousand things. <laughs> yeah, on that purchase obligation note, that was one of the things that I had in mind earlier and didn't think of. But in the 2017 10K, I think it was something like $2.8 billion of purchase obligations for the mm-hmm. year 2019. And in the 2018 right. 10K, it jumped to like 4.3 billion, so it increased by something right. like 1.5 billion for the year 2019, from the 2017 to 2018 10K. And I don't know how many of those, how much of that is Panasonic versus other suppliers, but it seems like a possibility. Uh, this is a, another one of those curiosities, but it seems like a possibility that maybe they got some rebates for quarter three and quarter four and got those by 
agreeing to purchase more in the future, which with the demand situation, that might get kind of hairy if that is in fact what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Was that kind of the the take that you had? Yeah, that, that was where my head was at. And the other thing I'd mention is that the third quarter, obviously, for Tesla was like a miraculously um, profitable quarter and probably will never revisit profitability like that again. But if you looked at Panasonic's report from the same period, they lost money in the business that sells into um, into Tesla. So it begs the mm-hmm. question, like, you know, if why, why is your key supplier losing money um, in a quarter where you're making your most money? And it may be what, you, what you're describing is that they gave them rebates or breaks that caused Tesla to be more profitable, them to be less profitable. And then they said, okay, we're going to hook you up this quarter, maybe the fourth quarter. And then they kind of pushed back those purchase obligations into the following year. And mm-hmm. just kicking the can down the road. Um, you know, so, and, and listen, Panasonic's in a tough spot. And if you've ever followed Japanese companies, they're very different culturally. Um, they're very, very slow to admit mistakes. It's a matter of honor and everything else. I mean, I've always said we won't know Panasonic's really in trouble with Tesla until some executive in Tokyo launches himself off the side of a building. I mean, that's kind of how tough the Japanese culture mm. is in terms of admitting a mistake. Um, so anyway, um, but I think, I think you're right on to it. I think, I think if Panasonic and others gave them a break, I don't know what Tesla tells these guys. They might say, listen, if you don't give us a break, we're going bankrupt. You know, so you, then you definitely don't get paid. So why don't you play ball with us? I, I don't know what the gamesmanship that goes on, um, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's something uh, along the lines of how it goes. But that can only mm-hmm. go on so long, you know. That can, yeah, that can only go and on so long. and thinking back to quarter three and quarter four, obviously in Tesla Q we we covered this a lot, but I don't I don't know that people on the long side paid much attention to the fact that quarter four had higher sales and deliveries than quarter three, and less profit, like. That right looks to me to be a, a pretty clear red flag, but some people have yeah, just I, totally I, brushed it aside. I think it was, I, 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 correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was 7,000 more sales Q4 versus Q3. Or was it 7,000 more Model 3s? I, I forget which. I, but, I don't have those numbers your, in my head. But but I think it was 7,000 more. I think they went from like 83,000 total to like 91,000, something like that. And, you know, you're right on to it. I mean, you, you that's that's called a decremental margin. I mean, you're making less money on each incremental sale, and part of that's explained by the average selling price going down because they're selling more Model Threes and because they cut prices. And some of that's explained by you know um, less um, regulatory tax credits, whether they be uh, GHGs or, or um, zero emission vehicles credits. Mm-hmm. And you know that's the one time type of stuff. I want you know I, I might have used the word gimmicky earlier, but that's stuff. I mean, what you're trying to do when you're valuing companies, look at the sustainable profitability of the company, and those are not sustainable um, profits. And the inherent profitability of the auto business is miserable. And um, that that is really the short thesis to me. Mm-hmm. Just a matter of of how long it'll take to for the market to totally figure it out, I guess. Or 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 a creditor, or a creditor, or a creditor. Yeah. On on that or topic, a, or a director. What, what is Moody's doing? Like Moody's. Moody said that they had to get to five thousand per week, and I, well, I guess they they said they got to five thousand per week. So, well, no, uh, Moody said a couple things. Moody said they had to get to five thousand a week, and that and this is now we're going back to what are we talking about? March of eighteen, maybe yeah, um, when March they downgraded them. It, they mm-hmm. yeah, they said we they need to get to five thousand a week sustainably. No, it's not the it's not these one time targets where we do it for a week and everybody applauds and then we move on. 5,000 sustainably, which has not been the case. And they said they needed to raise capital, which they haven't. So, mm-hmm. but listen, you know, I, I've been, I've been bitching and moaning about the SEC forever. Uh, I'm kind of happy with them tonight, but by and large, I haven't been happy with them. The only people worse than the SEC are the other are uh, credit rating agents. I mean, are they um, even slower than the, the SEC? Well, they're slower. They're, con- they're very conflicted because there's only, you know, really, if you want to throw in Fitch, there's only three of them, S&P, mm-hmm. Moody's, and Fitch. They're paid by the issuer, and you know you can go back in history to the housing crisis and everything else. I mean, they do not have a good record of either being proactive or accurate. You know, they're like the SEC. Like once the bodies are strewn about the uh, the bar room after the gunfight, that's when they show up to find out who to arrest. And um, <laughs> so, yeah, they're uh, they, they they don't have a good track record. But they said in print 
what it would take for them to maintain their rating, which was 5000 a week sustained and raising equity capital. 5000 a week has not been sustained and equity capital has not been raised. But they'll wait and, until like this is default and then they'll come in. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the and on the topic of 5000 per week sustained not happening yet, just go look at the quarter three. This is, I'm talking to the listeners here. You, you know this, Ed. Just go back yeah. and look at Take the the number of cars produced in quarter three and quarter four from Tesla's releases and divide that by 13, and it isn't 5,000. It's less than 5,000. It's very simple math. So yep. do the math yourself. No, it's always a birth, it's always a birth Pretty, week or an extrapolation. Mm-hmm. You know. Yep. Like the uh, 500,000 per year rate that Elon meant with his tweet last Tuesday. Yeah, I believe you, Elon. So Moody's... Moody's needed five thousand per week and a capital raise, and neither have happened. And here we That's sit. Right. Correct. Yep. So, uh, so what? When will Moody's act, act? Moody's will act after there's a default, and they'll come in and downgrade the thing to not rated. You know, it, it, their history is horrible. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really know how they work internally. I I wonder if Tesla has any hope of being able to raise now, even with with this latest news from the SEC tonight. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, prior to this, I was unsure if they could raise because, you know, um, they did I've check actually, the Wixie box, the yeah. well-known sec- securities issuer box, uh, whether well that known, was correct well or not. Season, or yeah, well-known well known season issuer. issuer. Yeah. Whether that was, we know that every time there's been a mistake by Tesla, it's been classified as a clerical error. There's also <laughs> another school of thought, you know, um, that they've taken an interpretation that they're still a well-known season issuer that maybe in fact they've never been told outright that they are not, but, and I don't want to bog everybody down with it, but they did file a Reg D waiver concurrent mm-hmm. with the settlement and the Reg D waiver allows you to do a private offering. And, you know, one implication of that may be that you would only apply for that. It's not the only reason you would, but that they applied for a concurrent with the settlement with the SEC is that they weren't a well-known season issuer um, but the SEC said, okay, well, you, you can do a Reg D offering because that's with sophisticated accredited investors. I don't know. Um, I have filed a Freedom of Information Act request to try to get that answer. I've called multiple times. They don't answer me. But so anyway, coming into today, tonight's events, it was unclear to me whether they could raise. Because mm-hmm. my thought has always been that Musk has always been a readily issuer of, of equity. He has had no problem issuing equity over the course of this company's history. And when mm-hmm. he's done it, the stock has worked well. Why would you introduce this company to existential risk when you simply could go raise money and take that off the table, at least intermediate term? All of this austerity now and all this Spartan living for a growth company makes no sense to me. Um, so I, I've, I've wondered up until now whether he could raise equity capital. Um, now, tonight, now that he is, you know, we've got the SEC. The SEC is the one who has to make the registration statement effective if he was going to go mm-hmm. issue capital. And now they've got him where they're going to go after him, you know, for um, contempt of, of, of the agreement or contempt of court. I don't know how you could get an effective registration statement while this is still an outstanding issue. Yeah, I don't either. I wonder if the Reg D waivers will stay in effect even. Yeah, I don't know. You know, the only thing I'd notice about tonight's thing is that the consent, um, the, go, the show cause order is ad- addressing Elon Musk personally. It does mm-hmm. not address the company, right? And you could make the argument, since the company did not oversee his tweets, and because the company was party to the settlement agreement, that the SEC could take an even more aggressive approach and say, we're going after Musk again because he violated the agreement, and we're going after the company because they didn't abide by the agreement. Maybe they've chosen to split the baby and say, you know what? Musk out, you can raise capital um, because you're not subject to this this uh, to show cause orders. I, I don't know. I'm reading tea leaves here completely, and like I said in the beginning, mm-hmm. I am not a lawyer. But that, that that crossed my mind as I saw that. So yeah, and of course, if Elon was gone, a lot of the a lot of the long thesis would go with that. So. It seems seems to me that a lot of the a lot of the Tesla bulls, a big big part of their thesis is Elon Musk because he's oh. this visionary genius, which is the the view that he's tried to cultivate, obviously. Part of the brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a gigantic part of the brand. So I think I think this is why the SEC took the soft approach to begin with. They didn't know a way to separate him from the company without 
Now, I take a different view. I don't think that's their mandate to. And, and when you read the agreement, when you read the statement from Powell, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Powell, when it happened, he says as much. You know, he says, you know, that sometimes uh, there's some people that are inextricable from the company and its value, even if they kind of um, are bad actors in, in, in individual cases. He said, yeah, I'm paraphrasing. He didn't say it that way, but that's essentially what he said. So I think they've been trying to thread this needle of like, how do we sanction him but not kill, you know, the stock? But now I think he might have pushed them too far. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we've covered quite a bit tonight. Uh, yeah. Any any last items you'd like to cover before we wrap this thing up? Um, man, no. I, I mean, I think we covered a heck of a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I think if I sum it up, um, the thing that gets these guys is that they're they are on a daily basis, degrading the most valuable thing they have, which is their brand. And in a consumer products business, that's the death knell. Um, and mm-hmm. I think Consumer Reports was the first indication of that in the uh, broader broader press and, and into a broader audience. And I think that's something, if they're going to continue to do that, uh, and they don't have the capital to bring it up to snuff, it makes the mass market impossible for them. Mm-hmm. My mom and dad will not put up with this type of service. I'll put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Indeed they won't. Uh, all right. Oh, I forgot to ask about Hot Pockets. You, oh. you had a Hot Pocket lately? <laughs> you know, I can't lie. I, I never had one, and, and don't tell uh, Elmer. Elmer Fudd. <laughs> All right. Um, I won't tell him. I, but, um, but a couple of weeks ago, I think I was in a very bad state about the way the stock was acting. It's like a typical day with Tesla where something you think should cause the stock to go down 10% and it rallies up 2%. So mm-hmm. I went down to Dwayne Reed around the corner. Um, in honor of Elmer, and I did eat some Hot Pockets, and they were delicious, and it's, it's some high technology, the, the tinfoil thing and everything else. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in the microwave, yeah. Yeah, and, it was, I was pretty and impressed. And you don't start a runaway fire. It's awesome. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> anyway. All right, well, thanks for joining tonight, Ed. Good right, talking well, to you. Me. It was great. And uh, we'll have a, a fun week this week, I guess. I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't. You never know, minute to minute or hour to hour, day to day, what's going on. But it's definitely coming to a. Feels like it's coming to a head. We'll see. Mm-hmm. I felt that before, but this week does sound feel interesting. Indeed. And okay. with that, we'll call it episode twenty of the Tesla Q podcast. Thanks Bye-bye. very much for having me. Bye.